Today's scripture reading is 1 John 2, 3 to 11. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is God's word. Well, after a brief, a brief kind of segue into Second John last week, uh, we are back in uh, John's first letter. We'll continue uh, until the very end. The last sermon of the series is on Third John. Now, um, this letter is written, as I said, from uh, John the Apostle, who is a loving pastor called the beloved uh, disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved in his own gospel and also described by Jesus himself as a son of thunder. So he's a, uh, somewhat of a, an interesting character and man, and he's writing at this point at probably 90 years old to uh, the cities around Ephesus, or sorry, the city of Ephesus and the churches uh, around that region. Uh, he wrote this letter uh, to assure the church of certain things. That's why we've called it assurance. Um, and it's to assure the uh, believers uh, of their own faith and salvation in Christ. And it's also to assure them of the truth about the false teachers that are coming in and out of their church and their homes and to uh, protect them. Now, uh, John began his letter just by way of review, establishing two foundational truths for all uh, who would believe in Christ. One is uh, that deals with God as Savior. And that is rooted in the historical reality of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, coming down, taking on human flesh, living a sinless life for 30 plus years, dying on the cross for our sins and rising again. And John is very certain of this as the last living eyewitness and saying the first and foremost and most important truth is this idea that God is Savior and that in Jesus Christ. The second truth he deals with right after that is the truth that God is light. So you have God is Savior and God is light. And the reason basically he does this is that's the reason why Jesus came at all. God is light, meaning God is not just lit up, but God is holy, completely other, perfect, uh, totally apart, separated from sin. Man is not. And so in saying God is light, it's the reason why God came. He was to save an unholy man who was in darkness, pursuing darkness, and they came, uh, Jesus came to reconcile uh, men back to, to God uh, who is light and who is holy. So we left off, though, the last time we were here at the end of the first chapter and then kind of into the second, with John describing Christians as those who by God's grace come out of the darkness and walk intentionally in the radiance of God's 
light. Those who have genuine fellowship with God and with one another stop trying to pretend or deny or redefine their sin. They instead um, accept their identity as a saved sinner uh, who continues to have a sinful flesh but is redeemed, uh, who commits then to having a practice of confessing sin regularly, not just one time at an altar, but regularly and regularly claiming forgiveness in the one sacrifice uh, of Christ and being cleansed. Now, for I don't know about you, but I had a different view, uh, probably somewhat of a wrong view of confession. I, I just didn't like it. It felt um, too dutiful. It felt uh, too Catholic. It felt whatever that made me um, kind of be repulsed by it. But uh, in studying First John, um, I've begun to view it much less as a, as a punitive duty, as something to be uh, feared or disliked, and instead as uh, a beautiful, gracious gift, uh, which is maybe an interesting way to look at confession. But I am begun to see regular confession, daily confession, uh, as a means of grace, helping me to experience more humility, uh, helping me to experience more grace, helping me to uh, experience more intimacy with God, uh, who already knows all my dirt anyway, um, more boldness in how I live, more freedom in how I live. Uh, more confession has helped me to honestly experience more empathy for those around me who also are broken, uh, and more forgiveness for those who may sin against me. Um, more confession and a commitment to it has, has helped me to experience, I think, more personal joy and more joy in fellowship with others who are also a confessional. And so um, I have learned a lot and have much more to learn about confession. Um, but what we see here is uh, the first chapter setting the stage for a series of tests after John has dealt with, really, our doctrine and our sin. And now he gets into these tests of faith, um, there's a doctrinal test, there is a moral test, and there's a social test of, of how we interact with one another. And it has to do with testing our truth and testing our obedience, even to something like a command to confess, and trusting our, our, or testing our love uh, for the brothers. Now, we shouldn't be fearful of tests, though most of us are. Uh, you're kind of a freak if you like tests in high school or uh, in college, whatever. Uh, maybe you really enjoy them. Most of the kids that I taught for 10 years, hated tests, loathed tests, got to the place where they made their own tests, which wasn't a good idea, I've later found out. But Paul tells us very boldly to, uh, to test our faith. In a verse we like to often skip, I don't think this is the kind of verse you probably are pasting on your refrigerator at home. Uh, 2 Corinthians 13, 5 should be a uh, refrigerator verse, but probably not the first one there says, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? 2 Corinthians 13.5. I don't like that verse. It doesn't make me feel fluffy inside. Okay? And as I said, when you take tests, I had kids make their own tests, and what I found out was that they would make tests uh, that they could pass very easily. And we do the same for our faith. Like, okay, I'm going to test whether I'm really faithful. And we make tests that we know we will pass. And that's why we study 1 John. Because 1 John is a great way to test our faith. 
to test the genuineness of our faith. If you don't read 1 John and kind of just at least hesitate for a moment like, am I a Christian? Then perhaps you're not understanding it because it's a challenging book. It's one of the shortest books, but it's a very challenging book. And I believe it's a great way to test our faith. In today's passage, we're going to see that John puts forward a very bold test. And as he said, he expects Christians to not only commit to confessing disobedience. That's what we're confessing. That we have fallen short. That we are rebellious. That we have not loved as we ought and we have hated as we ought not. He also says... We're also to pursue obedience. We're to pursue obedience. Now, repentance, I kind of misunderstood for many, many years as kind of one-sided. I kind of confused confused repentance with confession. And just because you confess something, I'm I'm beginning to understand, even to the point of being sorrowful for something with tears, doesn't necessarily mean you're going to repent of it. Paul talks about that. I believe in First or Second Corinthians 7, I'm not sure which one, talks about the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Both of them, you cry a lot. You're sad about. You're, you're um, uh, sad about the consequences and the things that you've caused others. You, you are sad. You're broken over it. But it doesn't necessarily mean, if it's worldly sorrow, that you're going to repent. Repentance is not only confession. A lifestyle repentance includes confession and a constant fight against ungodliness but it also includes a fight to train for godliness, as Paul says. It's both. Otherwise, it's not truly repentance. Unfortunately, we tend to be, and maybe it's just me, people of extremes. Whatever road we happen to be walking on, we tend to fall in the ditch on both sides, back and forth. And in regards to obedience, I find that we we end up in one or two places and we're kind of going back and forth. We either become hyper-obedient or become anti-obedient. Now, by hyper-obedient, um, we know what that is. That's the legalists, right? The self-righteous individuals. Um, the ones that, without question, are, are doing good things so that God will love them more. Okay? That's bad. But just as equally bad are what I would say the anti-obedient, or those who are self-indulgent, that basically said, God loves me so much that I'm just going to do bad things because it doesn't really matter. So you have these two extremes where we fall into and trying to figure out how we're supposed to obey, why we're supposed to obey, and those types of things. So John is going to ask some, some really hard questions here. And I think that it, if we were to take everything down to one question for John, this is it. And this is a tough one. And it is, is there enough evidence? Is there enough evidence to prove you're a Christian? Okay. Now, these tests he gives us, you're going to be very tempted to like, think about other people. Like, I'm going to test whether those people are Christians. No, 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 no. This is about you and God, me and God, our relationship. Is there enough evidence in a court of law to, to prove that I'm a Christian? There was a, um, a gentleman who was uh, leading a house church in Iran about two years ago, I believe. He was brought up on charges. I don't know what the exact charges were, but basically he was being a Christian to which the judge told him, if there's enough evidence to prove that you're a Christian, you're going to be killed. I couldn't help but read that and go, hmm, why don't I try to get out of that one? Right? Implying that if I got out, there wasn't enough evidence. And I'm not interested in proving anything to anybody, but it's a great question for us to ask ourselves. And I think that 
if John is coming and saying, is there enough evidence to prove? We're going to appeal, if you had to appeal to, to two people, I think we'll appeal to either Paul or perhaps James. Most of us are going to appeal to Paul to prove. And the reason we appeal to Paul and his writings is because Paul speaks more than anybody about the doctrines of grace and salvation, about how the law cannot save, about grace alone, faith alone, you know, all these things. And they are good and right and wonderful. But few of us are going to call up James. And the reason why is because when James comes up, he's going to turn to us and say, well, show me your works. Show me your works. We don't like that. We have um, caught into a place where seems like, and I might be the only one, we're completely opposed to any obligation for good works. We may not say that outright, but that's, I think, many of us how we feel. The mere mention of good works makes us uncomfortable. It's the work of Christ. Well, I understand that. You start saying good works, you start talking about obedience, you start talking about obligations to follow commandments. Uh, it irritates me, makes me angry, stop getting in my space. That's how, uh, maybe you don't feel that way. That's how I tend to react to it, and I'm not sure that's a very good reaction. My question for myself is always, why do I feel that way? Why do I feel that way? God's written commands to do blank, whatever it is, or to not do blank. Seems like in our culture today, and I say culture as in mainly the Christian culture, the church. The flat-out commands to do X, Y, Z have seemed to be taking a back seat to the Spirit, who's the true guide to ethical living. More trust has begun to be placed in this subjective kind of inward prompting, even if that inward prompting to do whatever contradicts Scripture. Well, that's the Spirit that's told me to do X, Y, Z. In other words, there seems to be this fight against being taught by the law of God anymore. The law of God is passed. The commands of God, are they kind of apply to us. We don't really know how, but it's like the pirate code. They're kind of good guidelines that we follow when it's convenient. These are the very people that John is writing against. Okay, The very people that are saying the law is, is meaningless. We don't need the law anymore. We have this secret knowledge. The spirit leading, we don't need that. Now, the truth is this. When Jesus saves someone, okay, not when someone believes in Jesus. I like to say when Jesus saves someone, when he saves someone, that someone is transformed. They're completely transformed. They're completely changed, okay? Though they were once, as the Bible says, an enemy of God who loved their sin, they, by grace, have become a child of God and hate sin. And just as sin and disobedience go together, love and obedience go together. And obedience to God's word is not a means to acquire God's love. It is a response to God's love and a demonstration that you love God. But let's not put one before the other. Paul and John, along with James, are talking about the same things, just from a different perspective, a different emphasis. 
Paul is going to write about what the gospel does to us. Takes those who are dead and makes them alive. Takes the natural man and makes him spiritual. Takes a dead man and makes, breathes new life into him, creates a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. What the gospel does to us. John and James emphasize what the gospel, that same gospel, does through us. Different emphasis. Now, start in verse 3 in 1 John, and he's going to hit us very hard, similar to James, and he says this, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. I should be able to read that verse and just move on. Right? Like, got it? Yes. Amen. Read God's word. Let's pray. We are kicking against that. We kick against it. I know we do. I know you do. What do you mean? Commandments. What do you mean obey? I know God. I mean, we just play these ridiculous games. And John is answering the question, how can we be sure that you know him? How can you be sure that you are a Christian? The issue that John is taking here is those who claim to know God, and there are a lot of people who claim to know God. And yet, their claims seem to contradict what God has said here. And he said a lot here. By either what they're doing or what they're not doing. Both. Now, biblically, we talk about knowing someone. It, is, it means it's, it's talking about the deepest level of intimacy you can have with someone. A man knowing his wife, right? That relationship that is intimate, more intimate than any relationship ought be. So we talk about knowing God. That is, we're talking about what is the nature of the relationship. Because we don't all get to that level of intimacy with everyone. We shouldn't. But we should with God. And if you think about our relationship with God, if God is truly personal, if you can really have a relationship with God, then we should be able to understand what it means to know Him in a relational sense. And so I was thinking about ways to know people. We can know someone just intellectually, right? Think about a relationship that is purely intellectual. You know them in some sense. But I don't know if it's a very complete or even satisfying sense. When we know someone purely intellectually, it means our relationship amounts to knowing facts, knowing truths maybe about that person, having opinions and sharing opinions with that individual but rarely do we actually expose our heart to that individual. I know a lot of marriages like that. Very good at arguing, sharing opinions, but very rarely go to a place where they're talking and sharing their hearts about their insecurities and their fears and their doubts and their needs. They're just declaring what they don't like or dislike intellectually. Only knowing God intellectually amounts to a relationship, quite frankly, that is structured, that is sterile, and that is very predictable. With God, that means that we begin to trust Him only after we can understand Him. And I won't trust Him if I don't understand exactly what... I want answers. Why is this happening? And if you don't tell me why it's happening, I'll reject it. Or reject you. And so, in order to 
get him to a place where we can understand God, we take all the things we don't understand and toss them out, and we fit what's left into this God-shaped box and pack them in so that we're comfortable with our little God here, and we can comprehend and tell you what God will do and what God won't do. It's a very cerebral relationship. The person knows a lot of answers about God, a lot of facts about God, a lot of truths about the Bible, lives very morally, oftentimes, they are a very good Pharisee. And that's a Pharisee, they're going to get a hard rap, but they were very moral, Bible-thumping guys. They thought that was the means to salvation, which was wrong, but they, in addition, were very uncomfortable with mystery. Very uncomfortable with anything that they couldn't predict. Intellectually knowing someone. You can also know someone purely emotionally. I mean, consider what a relationship, maybe you've had one, that's purely emotional. A relationship that's purely emotional plays itself out with the change of emotions and experiences every moment unpredictably. It's very difficult to have a purely emotional relationship with someone. When things go my way, I generally feel good. When they don't go my way, I feel bad. Think about that in relationship to God. Knowing God emotionally usually becomes very individualistic. It becomes very subjective and very unpredictable. God speaks to you. That's good for you, maybe not for anybody else. And what happens is, everything begins to be governed by how you feel. They begin to overemphasize emotion to the point where they evaluate every interaction with God as good or bad, depending on how they feel. Every church, how does it make me feel? Every sermon, how does it make me feel? Every rebuke they get from somebody, how does this make me feel? Any encouragement, how does it make me feel? There's no spirit in XYZ because I just don't feel it. That's a scary place to get. Because it's unpredictable and it's difficult to measure because you can't tell somebody feelings are wrong. So it puts them in an incredible position of authority to declare things about God. Right? If, if The funny thing is, if you tell somebody, like, well, how do you feel about that? It makes me sad. No, that's wrong. You can't do that. That's why feelings can be very dangerous if they're going to govern your relationship with somebody. God intends for us to know him. He wants to know us. John 17.3 says eternal life is defined by knowing God. But it's a, it's a knowing or he wants to be known spiritually. Now God is not interested in a relationship that is fleshly, that is casual, and that is meaningless. He is, he's not interested in a relationship that's purely intellectual or purely emotional. Now, That's not to say that there's no intellect or emotion involved in our relationship with God. Feelings are a gift of God. God describes himself as having feelings. Okay? Perfect. Not screwed up like ours. Intellect. Talks about the mind. There is an intellect and emotion involved. But both of those are to be submissive to the spiritual. Why? Because there's many times I read the Bible and I don't like how it makes me feel. Like when it says... Keep commandments. Amen. Right? Or there's stuff in the Bible I don't understand. So do I reject it because I don't get it? Explain to me the Trinity. Okay? 
the Bible teaches it, though, then that is what we're submissive to, even in our intellect. Sin is a spiritual problem. I know that the destruction of our relationship with God was not an intellectual destruction or an emotional destruction, though those things were destroyed. That's not what caused it. There was a spiritual destruction that occurred, and therefore, there needs to be a spiritual solution to it. A restoration that is much more than just reforming how I think and and changing how I feel and and just kind of cold-knuckling it. There has to be a complete transformation for there to be hope, and that's a spiritual thing. I like how Romans 6 talks about it. There's other passages, 2 Corinthians 5, Ephesians 2, but Romans 6 says this, for those who have been saved by Jesus, it says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Not the reformed version of life. The newness of life. The new birth of life. It says, for if we have been united with him, In a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him, not just in eternity, but right now. We are... And have been made alive to God by God. So the question is, how do we know if we are alive to God? How do we know that the spiritual renewal has occurred? How do we know? And Well, James, in his epistle, the brother of Jesus, careful reading it, says a phrase that we know well and do not like, which is, faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. Now, James doesn't say faith without works is really weak, really vulnerable. He says it's dead. Not even that it has died. It was never, ever alive. Faith without works has always been and will ever be dead. Not breathing, laying there, doing no one good. Dead, dead. How many of us would describe our faith as dead? Some of us should. I'm not making that determination between you and God. James and John both argue that confessed faith, I believe. Even the demons say many things like that. Declaration of what is true. I am a sinner. Yep, that's true. God is holy. That's true. But just confessing something without any action confirming that is not faith at all. There's a temptation to separate faith and works. But James, and here John says, you can't separate those two. They go together. Now, please know, the works themselves do not save. The works do not save. The works do not save. The works do not save. Jesus saves us by His work, dependent upon Him. Don't look at me, God. Look at Jesus. But Jesus saves us to do works through us. 
I'll prove it. You ready? I can tell you're on the edge of your seat. Okay? A lot of love coming here. I know. The guy gets a stamp and tell you to obey. Ephesians chapter 2. Love, verse 8 and 9. Wish we would read verse 10 more often. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. If you want to read the very beginning of Ephesians 2, it says, you were dead. And then you were made alive by God. And Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Awesome! Because my works are really bad. So I need to put faith in someone else whose works are really good. Jesus. Okay? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, even this faith, is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It should be humbling. Then verse 10, check it out. For we are his workmanship, amen, created in Jesus Christ for good works. Wow, that sounds like a lot of pressure. That's okay. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's Christ doing them through us. He's already done the good works, so to speak. They've been prepared by God. So if our relationship is primarily then spiritual, how are we supposed to grow in that? Like, I understand intellectually, if a relationship is purely intellectual, then I understand growth in that relationship. It means, you know, solving more problems. It's like, it's like math. Just get through thing. Okay, I understand that. I understand that. And the relationship grows because I understand more. If the relationship is purely emotional, then growth comes from having new experiences. That's what, you know, the word, I need a new experience. And when that experience isn't satisfying, I need another experience. And when that one's not satisfying, I need another one. You have more and more experiences. That's how growth happens. Look at all the experience we have together. But if our relationship is spiritual, where does growth come from? What gets me to a place where I'm doing works as I'm called to do? I believe that since our relationship is spiritual, growth comes through revelation. Comes through revelation. Not the book of, not the revelation given to John, but revelation from God. And the question is, where has God revealed himself as to be known, as we talked about, to know God? This is not a trick question. Where has God revealed himself so as to be known? Not Harold, right? His word. His word. His word. This is how God, this is how you know God. Not intellectually, though that is there. Not emotionally, though that is there, and some won't make you feel good. Spiritually, God has said, this is how you know me, through my word. So know that there are no modern revelations, no internal leadings, no guidance from wherever that is on par with this. Nothing. No spirit leading that, well, I think it's telling me... No, this is the test of all things. This is how God has revealed Himself to us. This is how He has made Himself known. 
This is how we learn about him. This is how we learn to love him. This is how we experience him. This is what leads to our obedience. What do we do, God? John would never, he's Jewish, right? The Greeks could understand, all intellectual, they can understand this emotional thing. John would never be able to understand a real knowledge of something that didn't lead to a response to obedience. If you know God, you obey Him. If you obey God, you know Him. How do you get to know God more? You obey Him. I'll give you a quick example. I am to love my wife as Christ loves the church. Now, I can accept that intellectually. I won't comprehend what that means at all until I begin to sacrifice humbly for my bride. So I begin to take responsibility for sin. Suddenly, I understand the gospel in a very real way. Through obedience comes that knowledge of obeying as he did. Gosh, God seems to be very generous. The richest person in the world, well, out of the world, Jesus, who owns everything by nature of creating everything, comes down in the form of a man as a servant who is mocked upon by his own people, the spit of which he created too as it's flying on him, right? Everything he created. And we see our God demonstrate what generosity is. You want to learn to be generous? You be generous. And you begin to see and understand how hard it is to do, and it begins to teach you more about the love and heart of our God. If you know God, you obey him. If you obey God, you know him. I love the if statements of John, and I hate the if statements of John. In the back of this book, you'll find two, um, two appendixes. One is whoever's, for example, verse 2-5, whoever keeps Christ's word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. Whoever says he abides in Christ, ought to walk, just like whoever, 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 whoever. Then you have the if one. If we say we have fellowship with him, and we walk in darkness, we lie. If this. A lot of if statements. If this, then this. Now, a little English lesson for you. The difference between imperative and indicative statements. Okay? Imperative statements are commands. You ought to do certain things. Indicative statements are statements of fact, statements of truth. This is an indicative statement. If you know God, you obey. Not, if you want to know God, you ought to obey at some point. If you know God, you obey. And John loves if statements. That's why it's a very difficult book. But so did Jesus. In John 14.23, his gospel, here's what Jesus said. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him and we'll come to him and make our home with him. If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. Well, how do I know if you love You keep my word. If you don't keep my word, well, then you don't love me then. It's so plain and simple, it's scary as heck. John is, is probably really stressing this hard in response to these Gnostics guys because they celebrated gathering all kinds of knowledge and experiences at the expense of obedience. Their obedience wasn't so important as long as they had like, you know, I've gotten to level 7 of knowledge, where are you at? 
Okay? Or I had this incredible experience. God's really talking to me. Really? And no obedience. That, that doesn't matter. What was mattered to them was the soul. Therefore, the body meant nothing. You could do whatever you wanted. Those same people still exist today. Dare I say, some are in here. What's it look like? It's the person, quite frankly, who podcasts a thousand sermons, reads every book there is, memorizes all kinds of verses, attends church, plays the part, the role, has all the gear to make him look like a Christian athlete, but never goes and runs a race. They do nothing. Though they might wave, you know, they, they I don't even have my wallet, they wave their fire insurance card. I've got it. Got my Jesus Club fire insurance card. Their lives are not governed by God's word. Governed by God's word. Make decisions by God's word. Understand suffering according to God's word. Now, John is attacking faith, quite frankly, that is acknowledged, but it's not lived out. Well, what's that look like? Well, it means people who confess the gospel and don't actually live the gospel. What does that mean? It means this. You accept that you're loved by Jesus, but you don't love. You accept that you're forgiven by Jesus, but you don't forgive. You accept that you're served by Jesus, but you don't serve anyone. You accept that you've been shown grace, but you're never gracious. You've accepted you're shown mercy, but you bite the first head off the person that does something wrong and you're not merciful. You accept that you've been given everything, but you give nothing to anyone. That's someone who confesses the gospel, understands the gospel, doesn't live the gospel. So there you go. Do you even believe the gospel? For those whose ears right now are like itching because you go, this sounds very self-righteous. This sounds so legalistic. John makes sure that we understand what the true motivation is, which is the love of God. Not the love for God, the love of God. He says in verse 5, But whoever keeps his word, so these people I'm talking about, whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So notice John says that those who by the Spirit strive to walk in the light of God's word do so not out of a love for God, but because of the love of God. Do you understand, do we understand that we do not have the capacity to produce love ourselves? John will later say in the fourth chapter, he said God is light, and in the fourth chapter he'll say God is love. He's the very definition of love, the source of love, any love that exists here. We love simply because God first loved us. So what happens is that when that love, if that love, by God's grace, comes into your heart, it produces love from the inside out. Now for the next convicting verse of the day. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14 talking about the love of Christ, says this, verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. Not the love for Christ. Love of Christ controls us. Why? Because we have concluded this. 
This is why the love of Christ controls us, because they have believed in the gospel. Here's what he writes. This is why the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded that one has died for all, and therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Am I a Christian? Am I a Christian? What a horrible question. I think a better question, probably, and maybe harder to answer, because it's easy to answer, I'm a Christian, yeah. Does the love of Christ control me? Does the love of Christ control me? Really? When no one's watching, when it's you in the silence of the wall, does the love of Christ control you? Does it control me? Because just like the false teachers, we are apt to be controlled by the love of many things. Love of power, love of position, love of money, the love of relationships. And many of those things are good, but they become bad through sin when we worship them or they, we believe they're going to save us. Abiding in Jesus means knowing Jesus means knowing God, means transformed by God, and that abiding looks like walking like Jesus, being controlled by Jesus, the love of Jesus within us that births in you a desire to want to imitate him. If you are not abiding in Jesus, if the love of Christ does not control you, then you are controlled by something else, and John says that, you're still in darkness. He says in verse 7, Beloved, I'm writing you not a new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. And the old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light's already shining. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. So John reminds them that the specific command he's asking them to follow is, is... Nothing new. It's very old, like he said in 2 John. And he picks on the command to love. He's going to hit that particularly because apparently false teachers were encouraging people to treat the Bible like some kind of buffet. And they could pick and choose the parts of the Christian life that they wanted to follow. That doesn't sound like anyone I know. Me, for sure. I could give you a list of things that made me a Christian as long as I did or did not do. The other things that I was actually commanded to do and forbidden from doing, eh, I just kind of fudge on those. They're not as essential. In this case, they were choosing, these men, to basically not forgive their fellow brothers and instead hate them. They may have not hated them actively, but by the fact they didn't forgive them means they hated them. Similar to the kind of spirit of the book of James, shows us that God intends for what we believe to actually move beyond words and into actions. Even if we preach with our mouths orthodox truth, we need to be careful that we're not preaching heresy through our actions. We need to be conscious of that. It's easy to speak stuff, easy to confess stuff, very different to actually live out what we confess at times. 
And Jesus calls it um, a new command. I mean, he tells them it's a new command also because it is new in some sense. It's old. From the beginning, God has said to love him and to love others. But through Christ, things changed. Jesus said it's a new command. The old has been fulfilled. The legal obligations of the law, this thing external from us, the thing that, that condemned us, it was written, it was fulfilled, and it is We are freed from the obligations of it legally. But the Bible also says that the Spirit came and wrote that law on our hearts. So through through Christ, then, there's a new way of living and loving that isn't from an external source anymore. It comes from within us. The question is, is that source in you, and if it is, or to determine whether it is, is your life getting lighter or darker? Is, or are you getting closer to God in intimacy and knowledge of Him? Or are you getting further away from Him? Are you exposing yourself more to the fellowship of the light in the church? Or are you separating yourself from that kind of fellowship for fear of being rejected? It's a pretty good measurement. Some good tests. But know that there is either light or darkness. There's no like middle area. I like to be in the shade, kind of. It's kind of light, kind of dark. There's no in-between. Love and hatred are in opposition. So you either love God or you hate Him. You can't just like, I kind of like God. Just go ahead and tell your wife that. I, yeah, I kind of like you, I guess. It doesn't really work well in an intimate marriage relationship, and it doesn't work well with God. Yeah, God, I kind of like you when you're likable. But I'm not going to really like you when I don't want to like you. You either love God or you hate God. It has really nothing to do with His ways. It has to do with your relationship with God. Now, by hating, I don't necessarily mean um, like the worst hate you can imagine as we think about hating. But we have to understand that hating is, is also indifference. It is also contempt. It is also viewing brothers as a nuisance. It's also viewing brothers as an enemy or a burden. It's living our lives without consideration for anyone, especially our brother. It's looking down on our brother. It's simply tolerating our brother. It's being burdened by our brother. It's never thinking about how this might impact our brother. John's going to draw some very definitive lines here about the genuineness of our faith, claiming you cannot be a Christian and not love your brother. That's the command he's going to hit on. Choosing to live, which I think that's what's happening, with indifference or contempt or lack of love, choosing to hate is choosing to live in darkness apart from the light of God. And I've seen people choose that. I've seen people come to our church, good friends, not so good friends. I've seen people leave our church, where they are living in darkness. And John describes your behavior perfectly, and it's kind of sad. But it's the opposite of how God wants us to live. He says in the last verses, Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there's no cause for stumbling. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Those in the darkness are described as alone, 
in hiding. No one wants to be alone. Um, the danger in hating your brothers, though, is that, guess what? No one wants to be around you. And it's not that you are uh, actively hating. It's that you, in many ways, are just staying in the darkness and you don't want to be known. And so you never make yourself known. The set, you end up, even if you attend community, if you gather community, you really don't engage and, and spend time with community. You separate your community so that you can be at a distance to reject what the brothers might say. And you end up, I think, burning a lot of bridges in the process or at least not building any in the process. You're alone. God did not intend us to be alone. There's one thing he said was bad. When he designed the world, men, not to be alone, gives them a bride, community, fellowship, intimacy. And John has tried to hit that hard. We want fellowship. The light of God is to bring us together as brothers and sisters dependent upon one another, confessing our sin to one another, encouraging one another, loving one another. Don't tell me you don't need that because the Bible says you do. You're lying to yourself. You're lying to us. You're alone and you won't admit it. He also says that they stumble, those who abide in the darkness. Why? Because they can't see where they're going. When you don't have the light of God to, as Proverbs says, light the paths, you hit everything that you aren't supposed to hit. You stub your toe, you fall on your face, you get scraped. Every little temptation that God is intending for you to avoid, you fall face first into. And what happens, if you stumble enough like that, you begin to despair, and you first begin to hate yourself, and then you begin to hate God. And community, that just repulses you. You begin, honestly, to assume the worst because of your own brokenness, because of your own mistakes, and every word, every teaching, every relationship, every rebuke, encouragement, blog, whatever, begins to be misperceived, misconstrued, and you receive everything as hate. And it's only because you just, you're in the dark. And everything feels like it, even though it might be trying to help you, it feels like it hurts. That's not what it's intended to be. John says at the beginning of Second John, or the second chapter, he says, I'm writing this to you so you won't sin, so that you won't stumble. If you walk by the light of God, you will have joy. You will have prosperity. I don't mean material prosperity. I mean contentment, joy in whatever prosperity you have. And lastly, he says, they're blind, they're lost, and confused. They just don't know what to decide because they're in darkness. It's very difficult to make a decision, mainly because they're scared. And when people are scared, they do one or two things. They just cower and hide or they fight for the wrong things. They get angry. They get irritated. They begin to see things wrongly. They don't know what direction to walk. And instead of walking towards the light, they demonize that and they begin to separate themselves from all things that are light to take their focus off their refusal to obey. Their decisions begin to be emotional, and they begin to counsel with others who are actually in the darkness too. And that's where they get their advice from. That's not what God intended for us to do. It doesn't mean every decision is easy, but when God's light comes out, it's very clear what we ought to do. It's very clear. And the truth is that life 
in darkness, a life of not abiding in God, is a life of frustration and discontentment and tears, not only because you're separated from God, but also because you're separated from the men of God. Obedience to God's commands, in this case to love, enables us, quite frankly, to make progress in our spiritual life. It is intended to bring joy. And darkness and rebellion makes that impossible. And just as obedience, I'm sorry, sin and disobedience go together, so love and obedience do. And I will say it again, obedience is simply our response to the love of God and the demonstration for, or love for God. It's a life of confession. It's a life of repentance. It's a life of living no longer enslaved to God, but joyfully enslaved to righteousness. Enslaved to sin, but joyfully enslaved to righteousness. So here's the difference. I pray for all of us who confess, and some do every Sunday as they come up and take communion, that you'll not only accept Christ as a Savior mentally, but spiritually, God will come to reside in your heart and you'll actually live in such a way as if he is Lord. Many of us, Jesus is my Savior. Jesus died for my sins. And if we ask ourselves, does the love of Christ control you? Is he your Lord? We might hesitate to respond. We take communion. Know that we take communion because Jesus commanded it. It's an act of obedience as a church. And we do so continue to do so because uh, Harold was wrong and Jesus didn't come back on Saturday. So we will continue to take it until Jesus does return uh, as an act of obedience because Jesus said that. But know that as you confess for those who believe in Jesus, you are confessing that I believe I am a sinner. Publicly, we're confessing that as John tells us to do that I am worthy of death. I believe that Jesus lived a sinless life, one I should have and was unable to and still am unable to, and he died the death that I deserved. And I believe that my faith is in his work, and it's not a faith that is in my own work, and that is what saves me, but I believe that Jesus dwells in my heart so that I would love him through obedience, not just through confession. I believe the most loving thing I can do is to tell you the same thing. It would be unloving for me to skip over 1 John and say, well, if you love him, you can obey sometimes, you know, whatever you feel like doing. The Bible is pretty clear. And with this series, you're going to see it's going to keep going. It begins with our doctrine. It matters. Knowing our sin and confessing it matters. Our love for brothers matters, and our obedience matters. It does matter. I pray that it's always rooted and empowered by faith in what Christ did obediently on the cross, but from that we still live and see him living through us.